Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, a joy to have Michael Wilson with us. Mike Wilson with Midwest Academics out of Michigan and Northwestern, legendary at Morgan Stanley, and he joins us now uh, for an update. I love what you say, Mike Wilson, about the alpha and the beta. This is not options, dynamics, folks, delta, gamma, all the other Greek malarkey we talk about. Mike Wilson, it's about relative performance versus absolute performance. Parse that. Yeah, well, thanks, Tom. I mean, look, I think uh, that's what this year is going to be about, right? Last year, you know, we were obviously in the, the, the midst of the pandemic, the lockdown, the, the economy was falling apart. And, of course, stocks discounted uh, the recovery. And it was really a beta trade, meaning everything kind of went up together because everything had gotten yep. crushed at the same time. Now it's about, okay, well, where can I find the sort of needles in the haystack, the, the stocks that are, there are companies that are going to really outperform as we reopen. And oh, by the way, there's going to be some losers as that happens too, right? There's going to be a wallet share shift as we go back to normal. There's going to be cost pressures. You were just talking about the reflation trade, something we've been on for quite a while. That's going to create right. some cost pressures for many businesses. So, so we want to take advantage of that. We want to take advantage of the companies that can benefit from that environment. And then try to avoid those that are going to be uh, going to be punished by that. And, and, and it's just it's on, yeah, on individual right. stocks with the Morgan Stanley Research Combine. You say the haystack. What are the sectors in a haystack? Yeah, you know, well, you were just talking about one. It's the banks, right? So we we've been on the rate trade for a while. We've been on the reflation trade for a while, and we think, look, let's let's take advantage of that. I mean, there are going to be companies that benefit from higher rates and, and higher commodity prices. So materials, metals, and mining. Uh, obviously, the banks. Um, clearly, uh, some of the cyclical parts of technology that you know have uh, benefit, benefit from a reopening of of an economy. Um, maybe the industrial sector, as we get an infrastructure bill, uh, those are going to be areas from a sector standpoint that could do quite well. Mike, let's just build on the year-end call, 3,900. I imagine you filled a lot of calls and they say to you, Mike, 3,900, why haven't you lifted your price target? Is this just down to the member weightings, the sector weightings, just the mechanics of the makeup of an index like the S&P 500? Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk about the S&P itself. It, it's really a large-cap growth index, John, as you know. And, I mean, those stocks have done terrifically well over the last decade. And part of that story has been the fact that rates have come down, right? They're, they're great businesses, but they've, look, they've been overvalued because rates are, you know, been repressed. And if that's changing now, well, then, look, their multiples are going to come down probably more, perhaps, than what the earnings can offset. So 3900 is a good – I I'm still feel really good about that target at year-end. We have a bull case of 4150. Okay, fine, um, but that's not the story. The story is what's going on underneath the surface. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. Some of the metals and mining stocks, some of the bank stocks that are really doing well. These are the these are the opportunities for portfolio managers to find. What I've really enjoyed in the last couple of weeks catching up with you guys at Morgan Stanley is just putting all the pieces together. Alan Zetner last week of Morgan Stanley talking up 5% GDP growth next year, 6.5% this year. I imagine a Matt Hornback high yields call is in there as well, Mike. Can you just put it all together for us, join the dots between the different calls coming from the bank at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the macro team has really been in sync over the last 12 months, I mean, because the, the pieces have come together. And, you know, Ellen's call on the economy, Matt's call on rates, our call on kind of the sector dispersion and, and rotation that's been going on. It's all part of the same narrative. And it goes back to almost a year ago now. It seems it seems like it was yesterday. But a year ago, you know, we were talking about this regime shift as we move from a, 
you know, monetary policy dominant regime to a fiscal policy dominant regime. And, and it's clear now that that's what's happening. What does that mean? It means a higher velocity economy. It means higher nominal GDP. It means inflation. And those are things that are going to change what works uh, going forward. So within the churn, the churn can be nice and it can be, uh, for example, a hot tub or it can be the ocean where you're getting smashed against the shore. And there's a question about how much leverage there is beneath the surface. It's going to lead to some pretty violent moves. Mike, what's your sense of how much leverage has been pushed out of the system or how much has been built up in preparation for a relatively violent churn over the next few months? Well, that's right. I mean, I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that we're not that comfortable with at the moment, to be honest, is it's been a really a one-way risk market. Okay, there hasn't been a lot of two-way risk. We had that little, you know, snafu in, in January. We had some short covering and some deleveraging that went on. But we're right back to those high leverage areas. When I say high leverage, I mean across both the institutional world and the retail world. We have, we've rarely seen leverage this high. And that can't bite both ways. And so the, the wild card to me is let, let's say that we go into the reopening uh, phase, which is, looks like it's going to be sooner rather than later. Some of these cost pressures arise. We do have supply chain issues. You know, this, this, this event in Texas with the weather is not helping that, by the way. So we could have margin pressure. We could have uh, rates go up more quickly than people are anticipating in valuation. So, so I think that leverage will, will create more two-way risk, will create some more volatility in the marketplace. And by the way, we'll create some opportunities in the areas that we do well, like. That's exactly what I was going to say. How do you use that? How are you preparing to jump on that with respect to specific market calls? Well, we're advising clients right now to probably take their leverage down. I mean, we think people have leverage that's too high. That, that Look, things are even in the things that we like right now, they're a bit ahead of themselves. And we wouldn't be surprised if we had another surprise over the course of the next 30 to 45 days and we get a bigger correction. And, and so, like, run lower risk right now, let's, let's, and, and let's take advantage of the drawdown like we got in January or like some of the drawdowns we got last year. Mike, fantastic to catch up, sir. Great work as always. Mike Wilson there, Morgan Stanley CIO and Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Megan Green joins us right now, Harvard Kennedy School senior fellow. Megan, there's all this debate about economics, and we all toss around ratios like productivity, a three-ratio, six-unit idea. And then there's this strange thing, the output gap. Do we really have knowledge of where these relationships are, these ratios, given the pandemic? Well, look, we never really know where the output gap is because it's predicated on this idea of potential growth. And Measuring potential growth is much more of an art than a science at the best of times, let alone in a crisis. But I would also argue that this idea of potential growth, this equilibrium that the economy is naturally going to come back to, might be a bit antiquated. I mean, in in economics, we believe in equilibria. Um, Usually there's just one. But we've all spent the past year looking at epidemiological models and The hard scientists don't view the world this way. They look at the world very differently, thinking, you know what, there is no actual equilibrium that we know about at the beginning. Instead, we're going to look at actors, use agent-based models to see how they respond to things, use machine learning to build models around that, and figure out what the outcome is. And so I think this debate about the output gap based on some kind of equilibrium is probably missing the point. And, you know, we economists, we, we assume that there are very intelligent actors in a very simple world. 
And I think scientists have, have a very different view of the world. They assume they're very simple people in a complex world, and there's a lot that we could probably learn from them in <clears throat> economics. Okay, well, what's the timeline here? The, what are we getting wrong right now about the x-axis? We've been talking about this across the simulcast all morning, the guesstimates out to June, the guesstimates out to September. Do you have a belief in the x-axis right now, or is that a mystery as well? Look, I think everything's a mystery at the moment. This isn't a typical kind of downturn, and it won't be a typical kind of recovery at all. And as I've been saying since the beginning of this virus, the virus is going to dictate everything, and we'll be determining prices and quantities. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's actually the epidemiological data that's much more important than the economic data at the moment. So, Megan, the reason people were gravitating towards the output gap, they were trying to assess how big this package was down in D.C., and perhaps whether it was too big. So what's the best way of assessing that size? Too big, too small? So I don't think we should think of this package as a stimulus at all. It's, uh, it's unfortunately been deemed that, but I think we should think of it as catastrophe mitigation. And so the, the point isn't to figure out the size of the hole to, to measure how big it is and how much dirt we need to fill it in. The point is to get dirt out to those most vulnerable um, so that we can protect them. And then in the next stage, think about trying to provide a stimulus so that we can get on our way to recovery. And in this sense, I think the next package is almost the more important one if you want to think about potential growth or if you want to consider there might be multiple equilibria and we're trying to uh, end up on a better one. The next package, the Build Back Better package, is the one that's going to do that. So what do you think that package specifically, Megan, should look like? Uh, I think it should be full of public investment. I mean, it doesn't matter if you believe in secular stagnation or not. If you think that we've had low growth, low inflation, low rates for so long because of supply side issues or demand side issues, there's one thing that fixes both of those issues, and that's public investment. So, you know, a massive infrastructure spending program uh, that's green in nature, I think, is an absolute no-brainer, and a lot of money should be behind that. Before we get there, Megan, I'd love your assessment of the efficiency of this $1.9 trillion package. Greg Valliere was talking about that Wall Street Journal op-ed talking about the pork built into this plan. Do you have a sense of whether that's actually the case or whether there is a sort of sense behind each dollar and sort of a firepower behind it? So I think there is firepower behind it, you know, purely based on the size? Is every dollar perfectly allocated? Absolutely not. But we've already learned in this crisis and in previous crises that we don't have great tools for ferreting out exactly who needs how much money and getting it to them. And so the idea is you just get out a lot quickly. It's not particularly targeted. It could be more targeted, certainly. And it doesn't include things like automatic stabilizers, which I, I wish it did so that you took the politics out of this process a little bit, and it was all based on what's actually happening in the economy. Um, but the idea isn't to fill in the hole perfectly. We're, we're clearly overdoing it on filling in the hole, but that's okay because the point is just to get money to the most vulnerable businesses but, and individuals. But Megan, what about people who look at the savings rate, the fact that it's climbed so incredibly high? Yes, this gives people firepower, arguably, when the economy does reopen, but does this indicate to you that people are not going to necessarily get this money out into the economy right away and that it's not as efficient and that perhaps the people who are getting it aren't the people who need it the most? So 
uh, that, that's where I think this might be targeted a little better towards those with lower incomes or no incomes, certainly, rather than a check going to everyone, which um, I, I wouldn't advise. But that being said, I think that the savings rate is a little bit misleading because it doesn't consider all the forbearance that we have um, at the moment. And so the savings rate has skyrocketed. So has household debt, actually. And uh, you have to consider that when bills finally come due, which many of them aren't because of forbearance, uh, a lot of the savings are going to have to be plowed into that. Megan, part of your charm is folding politics into your economics. Mitch Rochelle was on Friday from Florida where houses are being sold in 12 minutes. I, I mean, clearly the benefits are being skewed across different income levels. Do you have any confidence at all that Washington has a political will to actually get money to those that really need it? So I think, you know, from a macro sense, absolutely. If you just look at who the administration has hired on the on the domestic side, it's a load of labor economists. And that's because there is a real concern about income and wealth inequality in the U.S. So I do think in a big sense, uh, the Biden administration does want to do something about this. But as I said, you know, we don't have great tools for figuring out how to get money specifically to those who need it the most. Um, and what you mentioned in the housing market, I mean, that's clearly a result of, of central bank policy. And um, that's the Fed. Uh, mortgages, cars, those markets have been on fire because yeah. rates are so incredibly low. And, you know, I think they will be for a very long time. So I think we can, can continue to see those markets do well. Megan, good to hear from you. Thanks for joining us this Monday morning. Megan Green there of the Harvard Kennedy School Senior Fellow. On the change landscape of this virus, this pandemic, and all the good news we're observing when we look at hospitalizations and the improved statistics of deaths is Joshua Sharfstein. He's with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Mr. Bloomberg, of course, a philanthropist to his engineering school at Johns Hopkins and all of JHU and, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP in this radio and TV property as well. Joshua Sharfstein, I get upset. When I hear the media talk about herd immunity and simplistic phrases, you and I know it's some really interesting differential equations. Explain how pros like you take the fancy math of Diffie-Q and get us to where herd immunity clicks in. Well, I think there are models of herd immunity, and then there's the reality of herd immunity. And so people can estimate when we think herd immunity might kick in and what that means for people. But then we really have to see it because those models are generally based on assumptions. I think one of the key important points to remember about herd immunity is that you can have generally herd immunity, meaning that cases really don't have a good opportunity to keep spreading. But then you have communities where there's a lot of vulnerability. People haven't been vaccinated and few people have gotten infected that could wind up with pretty serious outbreaks as well as hospitalizations and deaths. So general herd immunity can leave some serious pockets. And then the second question is, you know, what will it really take? And that may depend right. on how these variants behave and other factors we don't know about. And one of the factors is the virulence of whatever you're talking about. Have you changed your perception of how virulent this vaccine is, this, this virus is rather, given the new variants that are out there? Well, there is certainly some evidence that the, some of the new variants may be uh, more lethal, but it doesn't appear to be, you know, 
fundamentally changing the epidemiology uh, of the of the virus so far in the United States. So right now, the cases are coming down, hospitalizations are coming down, deaths are coming down, but we know with 500,000 people who have died, just how serious this pandemic is, and we can't let up. We have to keep pushing it down um, so that we can really minimize the chance we get in trouble with variants or any other kind of problem. Professor, do you think we are underselling the vaccine at all? I think the vaccine's pretty awesome, uh, really. I mean, if you think about it, that within a year we have um, uh, incredibly effective uh, vaccines with very strong safety records. And you see now the data from Israel showing staggering declines in risk for people who have been vaccinated. Yeah. I think that uh, there's no reason to undersell the vaccine. But we shouldn't think that, you know, in a week after, you know, that everything's going to be fine. There are a lot of risks out there. Um, the way I, I'm telling people is, you know, that list of things that you want to do when this is all over, you can't do them all today, you know, but uh, if you've been vaccinated and you're, you're through that period, there are probably some things on that list you may be able to do. Well, don't you think it would be more optimal, so to speak, to tell people who have had the vaccine that they can do the things on the list? Wouldn't that be a better way of selling this vaccine? So actually encourage people to go and get it by saying to them that you can start to return to normal once you've had it. Well, I think you, you can say you can start to return to normal. I think that some people are really itching to be able to say, it's all done, you know, you're done. And that's not really uh, a great message for, for, for everyone right now. But you, I think, can say, for example, that people who have been vaccinated can get together for dinner. You know, um, you can go see your grandkids, uh, you know, it, with perhaps depending on the situation with a few modifications, but a lot closer than you were before. So, you know, I'm fielding these questions every day from people and they're just amazed when I start to tell them yes after a year of telling them no. Yeah, it has a psychological impact, I would say, on everyone, uh, particularly younger kids who have seen this as the majority or a significant portion of their life. Going forward, what's the time frame that you see at this point, given the vaccinations available, where you expect anybody to be able to go to their local drugstore or, say, a stadium and get vaccinated? Yeah, I would I defer to the estimates of the federal government. I think they're, they're talking about the summer for adults, more or less, for that. Um, obviously, it's going to take longer for kids because the studies have to be done. But um, it, I, I think we're going to see that this is going to turn from an excess demand situation pretty quickly. I mean, in, in, you know, in a matter of weeks or a couple months to a vaccine acceptance situation where we really um, are going to be waiting for people to get ready for vaccination. And we need to start that process now offering vaccines, answering questions, doing mobile teams. You know, there's there's vast inequity in access to vaccination right now, and we should be fixing that because that's going to turn in to the most important end game for this virus. Conversations like this are important. Joshua, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, sir. Joshua Shafstein there of Johns Hopkins. Diana Mola with us with J.P. Morgan Asset Management with a real focus on emerging markets. She joins us uh, this morning. Diana, I want to look in your research notes at the distinctions involved. You can't buy EM blind. You can't buy big uh, developed countries blind either. What are the distinctions right now of placing capital in emerging markets? So right now, the big driver, and we're seeing that playing out as well in developed markets, is actually growth. 
um, the vaccine rollout has been a very big focus on the markets. And I think there is growing confidence now as the pace accelerates, as you have more vaccine candidates coming into play, that this is going to be done in a sustained manner. And in some cases, we might even see reopenings of the economies as early as Q2. Uh, full reopenings in places like the U.S., the U.K., um, markets like Israel, where they're far advanced on the curve. So in emerging markets, very similar stories are playing out. Um, the focus has very much been on focusing on those economies where a rollout of vaccine has been credible and is actually well anchored. Um, so you look at somewhere like Chile. Chile stands out amongst the LATAM and actually amongst broader emerging markets as being one that's really ahead of the curve yeah. in rolling out vaccines, and that's actually traded well. Right. Similar story with Turkey. So, Diane, I know you're a great student of this. What's so important here is the maturity, the maturation, rather, of emerging market bonds, the size, the scope, the scale. Do the commodity EM nations have a greater, more sophisticated bond pool to play with? Um, so, by and large, commodity exporters tend to have more issuance. Um, they're larger economies, so that's not unexpected. But then, um, so those two, th those that side of things is actually a positive for them in that liquidity is not necessarily an issue. But actually, where we're seeing interesting opportunities right now is in the smaller idiosyncratic stories within emerging markets. Uh, those are markets that have less beta to what's happening in core rates and are less likely to be impacted by uh, the big duration move that we're seeing in the U.S. Diana, so much of the emerging markets call has hinged on the weaker dollar consensus. And here we have a growing number of naysayers who argue that you have American exceptionalism, that basically you have an economy that's going to break away and accelerate at a faster clip because of the vaccination schedule and because of the fiscal support and stimulus that the Congress is passing. How much does that disrupt your thesis, disrupt your argument that you need to go into emerging markets debt in order to get any yield? So, so far, what we've seen this year is most markets have actually, in, from a total return perspective, most markets have been dragged higher in yields um, as treasuries have moved. However, spreads have held up quite well in EM. And the, the big distinction up until now has been the move higher has been led by break-evens. What we saw last week is somewhat concerning for the outlook going forward, where it's no longer a break-even-led repricing of rates that we're seeing in the U.S., it's actually being led by real rates. Um, and that's actually something that we think the Fed is likely to be more sensitive to because not only are we seeing that spilling over to EM, we're also seeing that impact in U.S. markets. So you see mortgage rates are starting to rise. Um, we had the biggest rise in U.S. mortgage rates that we've seen since August last year. While the economy is looking promising, uh, the recovery is still at the early stages and it's still quite fragile. So we do think the Fed is going to want to lean against this. Wait, hold on a second, Diana. This is important. Are you saying that a key component of your emerging markets call is a belief and faith in the Federal Reserve to come in, buy more longer duration bonds to suppress yields if you start seeing uh, real yields continue to rise? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, what I'm saying is if it's rates moving higher because growth is picking up globally, and it's an orderly repricing higher of rates, both real rates and break-evens, that's a good environment for EM because growth is what matters and exports uh, from emerging markets are a key driver of returns. However, if we see rates markets running ahead of what we're seeing in the data, then that becomes a concern. And I think right now where we are, uh, the data is not there. Markets are pricing in a stimulus that hasn't yet been approved.
So that's the big distinction. We actually need to see that growth being realized and we need to see that inflation being realized. And that's something the yeah. Fed has been quite key in reiterating time and again, that it's actually realized core PCE that they're focused on. Dana, let's sit on the Fed just for a moment then. Chairman Powell tomorrow, Vice Chair Clarida in the mix as well. If there is some kind of intervention, it's usually verbal first. Do you expect any actual real action off the back of that? It's probably too early for them to do anything more. So I think they'll want to sequence the tools that they use to talk to markets and to communicate with markets. Uh, so this week we have a raft of speakers coming in, starting with um, today where we'll see the first speaker and tomorrow where we have Jerome Powell speaking. Uh, I think verbal intervention is going to be key. Um, we already had Jerome Powell speaking in previous weeks, reiterating the messages. So it will be key to see them doubling down on that message, that while the outlook is looking better, the economy is far from at a strong enough footing for them to be easing back on accommodation. Um, and I think if markets still continue to price in or accelerate too fast, then it's likely that we might see more tools coming to play. Tom, this is the issue at the moment, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, if you'd asked me about Chairman Powell, I would have said they'll stay on script, nothing new. Looking at the move that we've seen in the last week alone, it was a struggle to break 120 for about a minute. <laughs> then we got through 120, through 130, and now people talking 140, 150 well, in the very near-term future. I haven't done the technical work above a 1.36, but, John, I'll make it clear the one person I'm watching in the speakathon this week is Richard Clarida, head of Columbia Economics, truly one of our great academics on monetary theory. If there's one person who's going to say one sentence, it's going to be Richard Clarida. He has provided the guidance for financial markets, that's for sure, over the last couple of years, as maybe Chairman Powell has fumbled things just a little bit. Danny, do you have a number in mind where we get to on a nominal yield on a 10-year that starts to infect risk assets elsewhere? If it's not 136 and we're seeing equities gap lower now, is there something a little bit higher or are we there? So I think the technical chartists have been flagging 138 as a key level. Um, and it's not surprising that as we approach that, we're starting to see a bit of a spillover into other financial assets, which the Fed will be watching closely. But I think 150 is also another one to watch because that's the point where the 10-year yield is equivalent to the S&P dividend yield. And so for people who've been saying, why would I want to buy fixed income when the yield I'm getting from equities is much higher, then it becomes a different conversation where fixed income is actually yielding enough and still providing you the ballast in the, in the extent that we see uh, uh, any growth drawdowns coming forward um, to be meaningful in a portfolio again. So I think 150 is going to be the next level that we're watching very closely. Diana, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about what you have been saying, and I'm struggling with one aspect, the idea, yes, the data has not been showing the growth that perhaps uh, markets are pricing in, but markets are forward-looking, and they are looking to the reopening of the economy and the expectation of the stimulus being passed. What if the Fed is wrong? What if the Fed buys a whole host of longer-duration bonds and allows risk assets to keep going up, and that reflation that everyone is talking about comes back online and that growth, I mean, does that in increase the chances that the Fed will have to hike much more rapidly on the back end. So for the Fed to change their conversations around um, when they'll start hiking, you need to see inflation coming in and staying elevated for a sustained period. We already got guidance previously from Clarida that a sustained period means 12 months. So it's very difficult for, for me to see the Fed in the next 12 months starting to hike rates. Um, they might signal that they will be rolling back 
on some of their purchases before that. We'd expected that to happen in Q4 um, as early as September. But if the economic data looks promising, they might start preparing the markets for that move. But in terms of hiking, I think we need to see realized inflation above target for a sustained period of time. And that's really not yet where we are. Diana, always great to catch up with you. Thank you for your time. Diana Ramo there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Thank you, Diana. Good to see you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.